Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AMT Tech Trends podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. Today's episode is sponsored by Modern Machine Shop, Made in the USA podcast. More on them later. I am the Director of Technology, Benjamin Moses, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, AMT's Technology Analyst. Steve, welcome to a casual Friday. Yes, we're recording on a Friday. This is so fun. Yeah. This is this is actually... Okay, I did not understand <laughs> the gravitas and the significance of this recording session. Yep. Until you mentioned that, because you're always on camera in a suit. <laughs> for those of you watching. This is like the first time AMT <laughs> has put you on camera yeah. for anything, and the, you haven't been in a suit. The way I normally look on the weekend. This is a rare edition. This is episode <laughs> 90. 90, that's right. Big deal. They better get I the screenshots. I hope I got that right. <laughs> the audience better get the screenshots while they can, because you'll never see me in this again. Never again. <laughs> Steve, I want to talk about how we select our brands for tools like hand tools all right buckle up um so okay growing up my dad always had craftsman tools sure and i know you're a big fan of craftsman tools yeah um then i got into the video games <laughs> playstation 2 rolls around um i remember playing a car game a racing game called auto modelista okay it was really cool because it was a cell shaded game mm. meaning you know, it was the the cars were accurate in terms of their dimensions and shapes, but the the graphics was cell shaded to make it look like anime, yeah. make it look like more two D cartoons. Yes. I like that but, style, but really cool. Um, but one of the coolest things, one of the fun things that wasn't really it was part of the game, but like wasn't imperative to the gameplay was you could customize and set up and organize and decorate the garage. Oh, cool! Uh, that where you store your car. Okay. Um. And part of that was the stuff you could hang on the wall. Yep. And uh, and of course, there's the decals that you can put on your car to make it look like because race car and whatnot. Um, but uh, I that that game introduced me to the brand Snap-on. Okay, cool. And years go by, I, I become an adult and it's like, it's about time that I like start buying like tools sure. to actually like work on stuff, <laughs> what, whether it's the car or just like... Yeah ikea furniture like it's time to, it's time to get a good like it starts time to start building a set of tools and uh my you know my mom and dad passed down well my mom passed down a set of my dad's uh, uh socket set okay. to me don't know where it is oh, no. don't tell anybody <laughs> it's a really nice socket set and sure. like, my mom was originally trying to give it to um uh, her sister's husband john my uncle john um who uh Ultimately, he's he's an electrical engineer and he's like, oh, no, this is a nice socket set. Okay. This needs to stay in the family. This cool. needs to go to Steve. And so that's really. And of course, I lost it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's somewhere I know, though. Misplaced. Um, anyway, yeah, it's just misplaced. Um, anyway, when I look into buying myself my first set of tools, I'm just looking for like a toolkit, which I didn't realize like for actual like handy people who know their way around hand tools. Sure. Like nobody buys a toolkit. Nobody uh, buys sure. a tool set. Okay, as like a starter. You 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 buy a big, you know, sheet metal toolbox that you wheel around, and then you fill it with each tool as you need it. And if you want to get fancy, you get custom laser cut foam inserts to each <laughs> drawer, or you just throw them in there and let right. them clank around. Yeah. Um. But like, I, I'm not about that. You know, right. just, just let me get a good starter set. Correct. Um, but anyway, when I was shopping for this original tool set, I was like, it went back to my days in like middle school and playing PlayStation two and sure. auto modelista. I was like, let me, you know, I have, I have, I have a, a an adult wage. 
Let me <laughs> let me buy some nice tools. You know, sure. the saying is you buy nice tools, you only buy them once. You know, buy once, cry once. That whole thing. So I'm like, I want snap-on tools. Aren't they the best? They're known they have a reputation. So anyway, I look into trying to buy snap-on tools. Go to Google. Right. Snap-on. Yep. Nowhere. Nowhere. Can you buy snap-on tools oh, online? I hit Reddit, which I hate doing, but I go to Reddit <laughs> and they're like, yeah, Snap-on has like built amongst civilians, amongst people like me yep. who just want, you know, the clout of having nice tools. Sure. People like me who want to buy Snap-on, Snap-on has their marketing team has done this incredible job. And this also goes for Mac tools and Matco. Okay. You know, these they 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 have they have developed this clout that like these are for professionals. We don't sure. want like, you know, the Sunday, the fair weather, <laughs> the shade tree mechanic right. to have their hand, their grubby little soft hands on these tools. These are these are for real technicians. We'll get in soft hands later. Yes, we will. <laughs> um, you know, and, like so. So their whole thing is like the, the this allure to the civilians, to people who are not in that profession are like, Wow. They only sell to mechanics. Yep. These must be the best tools because they they want to keep them out of you know civilian hands. Yeah, just like HK doesn't sell the MP7 to civilians. Sure. Like that's yeah. not fair. We need the the MP7. There's parallels across different <laughs> industries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's like it's the HK of tools. <laughs> Who doesn't want this until right. you handle an HK and you realize they're junk? Foreshadowing. <laughs> um. So then, uh, yeah. So I years go by. Uh, then getting, um, friendly with my mechanic now Carter. Sure. Um, and he tells me everything that's like all, all about, good. you know, the, the yeah. big American sure. tool companies that are actually like half of their tools are actually made in China. They're all overpriced. Like they're made in the USA, right, right. but like very seldom are actually uh, American made tools. They've taken a global strategy. Yeah. Parts, yeah. But like they're, they're mark the, the way their sales campaign is I don't want to say toxic or hostile, but it's aggressive. Yep. And so not only do they, they have this allure, this exclusivity to civilians. I keep saying civilians, but it's a lack of a better term, non-mechanics, non-professionals that like, Oh man, they only sell to professionals. So they must be the best, but they sell out of these trucks. So you see the snap on truck or the Mac truck or the Mac co truck. And they like they drive the the, the salespeople drive also drive the truck and they sit and wait for outside of like car repair shops for a mechanic that needs a tool desperately and they want to get a job done because, you know, you don't want to charge the customers for all of the hours to do something simple. But if you need a tool, you need a tool. You want the right tool to do the job. So a mechanic will go out in like a panic to the snap on guy or if they you know, just get paid, which I'm sure the snap on and all of the tool trucks are smart and they know when their mechanic, the mechanics that they sell to get paid and they're like, Oh, they just got their paycheck. It's time to sell some (laughs) tools they don't need. And it's just really aggressive and, um, predatory, right. Data distribution model. Yeah. Yeah. But on the plus side, the tool salespeople come to you. Sure. Like, like you don't need to go to a hardware store right. and get it like that day. They come to you. Like if you need the tool, they come to you. And, and I guess that's where a lot of like the profit goes. Sure. You would think 
Um, I doubt it, but you know, you'd, you'd like to think that way, So, but it's just like these mechanics who already barely make anything pay an astronomical price to not get them. So naturally when I find all this out and, and, and fast forward a little bit more, I'm, I'm working in the manufacturing industry. Now we get the pocket NC yep. it ships with, um, a Wera, a hex driver yep. and several, um, not Allen keys cause the ger- Wera tools are German and uh, the Germans call them L keys yep. for whatever reason, whatever, win a world war. Um, and they're, they're really nice. But I end up like, you know, I, I step away with driver in hand yep. um, away from the test bed, away from the pocket NC. And I go to somebody's desk and like a dingus, I set the driver down. Never see it again. <laughs> Don't gone know forever. where it went. It's gone forever. So I reach out to Pocket NC. He's like, hey, where do I get one of these drivers? And right. Pocket NC like tells me politely. They don't actually like mean this in a hostile way whatsoever. I love Pocket NC or Penta machine. I'm like, hey, can you guys send me another one of these drivers? Sure. I lost mine. Right. And they're like, dude, that's a German driver. It's, <laughs> it's like a $30 driver, dude. Yeah. So yeah. go pound sand. Sorry. Like <laughs> just go to your hardware store and get, you know, three millimeter yeah. hex key. Right. And so. I end up reaching out to um, the the group of fine people on the prepared sure. uh, websites, the prepared Slack team. Yeah, uh, I reach out. Hey, where can I get like a replacement wear wrench? Yeah, and they tell me about KC Tool. Okay, and KC Tool is this great website uh, that sells all German tools, all the German tool brands, uh, and they're they've been great and, and they amazing prices on these high quality tools. Sure. Like I've given them way too much money. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, th- th- they've delivered yeah. and yeah. now you do end up waiting like a week plus for your German tools to come in sure. because if they don't have them on hand, they're coming overseas. <laughs> um, but you're able to go online, say add to cart. but you know, I'm not a professional. So, you know, I got time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it's, it's cool. And yeah. it's nice knowing that I have the German tools, but, right. uh, and that's more industry. So that caliber of yes. quality. When, of we, whenever we go to a job shop, to a factory, to right. a plant, doesn't matter how small the manufacturer is or how big they are. They all have wear a tools. When right. I went to Sandvik, yep. I thought this is how dumb I am. <laughs> I thought Sandvik had custom made wear a tools. Oh. For them, okay. because the wear a wrench or the wear a drivers, the the, the handle yeah. was the same colors as Sandvik's colors, okay. yellow and red. That's cool. And then like you, no. you dummy, <laughs> that's for like electrical insulation. <laughs> wear a tools. <laughs> these German tools are apparently like, like like comparing Snap On to Wera isn't quite sure. fair sure. because Snap Ons and, and and Matco and Mac therefore automotive technicians sure. and Wera sells to machinists okay. and electricians yeah, or, or electrical engineers. Right. Um, so electricians are just probably buying Husky and, uh, and, <laughs> and, 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 and Cobalt. And that's a funny point because uh, we talk about the reputation of tools and where things have progressed recently. And, you know, for me, like Craftsman was like a top tier. And then to your point, I've always had like a old travel tool. So yeah. I didn't buy individual tools for those things. Like if I buy a circular saw, I'll buy, I'll buy a single circular saw. Then if I need a jigsaw, I'm not going to buy, a, a, kit, a kit of those. My mom but, still has my dad's uh, craftsman power drill. Yeah. Yeah. That he bought. And uh, when he was in his twenties Yep. and now like, and it still works great. Yep. 
it's a little sketchy because like when you when you pull the trigger to start drill, you see sparks come out like the little vent on the side and it smells funny when you get going really hard and the power plug doesn't have a ground. It's only a two prong. You know, things have changed, but it's still it's made of metal. It was made in the USA. Craftsman, sadly, like they, they have a made in USA line if you want to go that far. But and the consumption of these hand tools is very different than the models in the past. So right. Being able to add the cart now or go down to the store. Like like we mentioned when we we're prepping that. Yeah, we'll see where our tools. But at the same time, we'll also see Cobalt and Husky from like Lowe's and Home yeah. Depot because those are accessible. And also, in some cases, you want a kind of disposable tool. Yes. So it depends on the scenario. And, you know, I bought a, a set of crafts. And I was like, man, this is going to be a great deal. And then I realized this is not the craftsman of 20 years ago. I had things breaking left and right and the wrenches are okay, but it, it the change in quality or change in perceived quality and uh, how, how they're used has changed over time a lot for a hand tool. Right. So. And there's also like a brand of, I was watching a YouTube video of a truck technician, like yep. an 18 wheeler technician was saying, there's a time when you go for snap on, or Mac or Matco. Sure. There's a time when you buy you you buy the nice tools like that, and there's a time when you just go to Harbor Freight. <laughs> yeah, and and he showed he, the, the guy in the video showed two example two crescent wrenches. These were massive, massive crescent wrenches, right. like the crescent like the the nut yeah. that this thing was supposed to turn is probably like four inches. Right. Like it's right. nuts how yeah. big this thing was, and it's like this is a snap on one. And if you notice. The end of the crescent wrench where you would gri- grip with both hands has a big like it's almost like an anvil. Right. It's for you put it on the nut and then you hit it with a sledgehammer. Yeah. I forget yeah. the name of this wrench. Sure. But it's like this is a two hundred and fifty dollar crescent <laughs> wrench that you will use once every five years. Yeah. Go to Harbor Freight, yeah. get it for 30 bucks, saw it in half. Now you have two of them for $15 and you hit it with a hammer. Yeah. You hit it with a sledgehammer. That's fair. Why Why spend that much for something that you're only going to use once every five years and it may as well be disposable because your job will change so many times <laughs> that you'll end up having to lug that thing around. Yeah. So there is a time. The moral of the story is there's a time when to go fancy for tools <laughs> and there's a time when not to. Let's talk about your soft hands. My soft hands, the, the ones that do not, my hands do not deserve German tools. So our, uh, our industry colleague, Russ, um, you know, he's a good friend of ours sure. and, and I hang out with him as often as I can. And every Tuesday night he, uh, hosts like a jam session at his house. Yep. Um, he works from home. He's fully remote now. And, um, they have a room in their basement that they've turned into a, um, their home office okay. and studio. That's cool. Um, and they're just like, he has it as a production studio for like both, you know, doing his webinars yep. and for actually making music. It's okay. really cool. But I mostly go there every other Tuesday just to listen to people play music. Right. Cause it's really fun. And it's awesome watching people work. What, like it, there's something about like appreciating an artist's art. Sure. And actually watch watching them work. Yeah. Like one of them isn't enough. You have to see both. Um, and it, it's one of the reasons why I go. But anyway, this past Tuesday, I go over and Russ hands me my bass guitar, which I, I bought back in um, when I graduated high school. Right. I bought a pretty nice bass guitar um, thinking that I would learn how to play. And, and I guess I learned how to play a little bit, but I am not good musically. <laughs> I, I like to sing sure. and I'm okay at singing, but like when it comes to instruments, nope, 
Yeah. Not me. Don't deserve the German tools, man. <laughs> um, anyway, he like coached me and was like, you're going to play space. I think I played for 15, maybe 30 minutes sure. and already had blisters on my fingers, <laughs> on, on like my middle fingertip. It was this big, gross blister. Yeah. I was like, hey, Russ, I got to stop playing. That's like, enough. <laughs> I'm only playing like one note over and over right, again. Right. But I, I have to stop now because for whatever reason, it's dark in right. the studio. My finger really hurts and I can feel like this bulbous thing on the yeah. end of the fingertip. Huge blister yeah. when I got home. Um, Is your body telling him to stop? Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. And I remember. Soft hands. <laughs> I remember every, to be honest, every time I do any kind of work, I, you can't do that when you're playing guitar. I wear gloves. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> I think I'm going to be one of those nerds the next time to play bass with a pick. I don't <laughs> want to be that guy. You got to get a pick, man. You got to keep playing. <sighs> yeah, just got to keep playing. Keep playing. Tell us. I'm going to have gross, rough hands. Tell us about today's sponsor. Tune in for Modern Machine Shop's Made in the USA podcast to explore manufacturing issues faced by companies making an intentional choice to manufacture in the U.S. Featuring commentary from OEM leaders, Made in the USA blends its nearly century-long expertise with a unique audio storytelling experience to shine a spotlight on the past, present, and future of American manufacturing. Find Made in the USA on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms. Follow Modern Machine Shop on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks, Steve. Bet. I got a couple of spicy articles. Talk to me. First one on nuclear power. Oh, heck yeah. My favorite power. When are we going to have nuclear power? Maybe this will tell us. Let's go. Uh, So (laughs) this is from uh, 3D Natives, uh, how 3D printing is used in the nuclear power sector. I'm sure I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, but fine. Uh, and it, ha- it has a bunch of use cases. I'm going to go to the three that I found. Uh, very interesting. One is, and Alabama, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but this uh, bullet is safety critical components in an Alabaman reactor. Alabaman. <laughs> You've heard of Florida man. <laughs> now we got Alabaman. That's one of our hashtags for today. Heck yeah. <laughs> so one of these is uh, in the uh, Tennessee Valley Authority, Brown's Ferry nuclear power plant in Athens, Alabama. The second most powerful power plant, nuclear power plant in the country. So fairly active. Oh, we actually have nuclear power plants? Oh, yeah, definitely. Awesome. Um, it's the, good to know. The TVA is massive. Uh, it's connected to the tail of the dragon if you happen to be in that area. No way! We'll get into that later. Um, so it's interesting because uh, considering their scale and how much output they have, uh, they worked with Oak Ridge National Labs, which the name will come up a lot in this article. Uh, Ornal. Uh, and they installed four 3D printed fuel assembly brackets for use in their reactor back in uh, 2021. And uh, it's very interesting because um, it's, you know, super regulated. So the ability for them to, um, you know, both print the part and have the confidence to put that in the assembly. You know, this is a, you know, one of the more most important parts of the, uh, uh, the section. So sure. it's very interesting. And the article gets into a little bit of what they use. So they used um, a laser powder bed fusion and material called three true form 316. I'm assuming it's stainless steel 316, but uh, and it gives some of the consistency. So that's that's the first one I want to mention. So that that sets the stage of some of the other ones we want to get into. Uh, and also, it's a good takeaway because it, taking the uh, concepts from each of these uh, bullet points and how the parallels across all industries uh, mm-hmm. on this. So the ability to create brackets and complex right. geometry like that—that's the first you know takeaway here. Is yeah. Um, we can do very, very complex nozzles, but the ability to create safety fasteners and critical yeah. hardware, yeah. that's a very good takeaway. Uh, the other one I have is uh, Siemens in Slovenia. 
Uh, so this is an international article, not just the U.S. Sure. Uh, the first 3D printed uh, operational part in the nuclear power plant as part of a work with Siemens is a 108 diameter metal impeller. Using 108 what? Millimeter. Millimeter. So okay. a little small guy, not super big. Uh, impeller for a fire fire pump uh, constantly in operations at the uh, nuclear power plant. <gasps> oh, cool. So this is, again, back to the criticality of it. And the cool part about this is um, the reason they use additive manufacturing is because the, the original plant was commissioned in 1981. Mm-hmm. So to go back and get that part from yeah. the they couldn't. So this is back to uh, supply chain issues right. that they run. That into. part is discontinued, discontinued. And plus a pump impeller is probably a five axis CNC machined part, potentially like a turbocharger. So impeller. in the pictures, you'll see their example. So I think the first one was actually cast. And okay. that's why it's a very good example for additive is the first one looks like it was cast and they did a plastic model mock-up mm-hmm. and then they show you the 3d printed model. So nice. I think it's a very interesting use case. And since it's modern and Siemens involved, they're able to create a digital twin of that. Right. Uh, through their process right. since they uh, even still if it's cast that mold is probably long gone it's, long it's from gone, 1981 yeah. <laughs> so it's probably yep. holding up someone's table at this perfect point now. <laughs> uh, and i think the last one i want to get into is um purdue university uh received a nice. grant for eight hundred thousand dollars from the doe to participate in the creation of 3d printed micro reactors so could have a reactor right right behind your desk <laughs> uh, so the university um would participate in a transformational challenge reactor demonstration program so they want to see, you know, the efficacy of micro reactors and, you know, where they can deploy yeah. and stuff. So they would uh, create the first 3D printed micro reactor by 2023. Uh, and the, the takeaway here is, yeah, that that's kind of cool. But the ability to embed artificial, artificial intelligence as part of the in-process QAs to improve the reliability and quality of the part. So they want to um, use artificial intelligence techniques to allow more data rich and cost effective nuclear power nuclear component qualification process nuclear power micro reactors artificial intelligence we just got so close to terminator it's not even funny (laughs) 2023 (laughs) i I think that i'm honestly like that's one of my favorite parts of terminator yeah was when he's got to switch reactors because the other one's like old and overheating so he throws it and becomes a little it's a little mini nuke it's like yeah we need that i mean obviously we're not going to be using nuclear power if it happens, we saw what happened with Chernobyl and we don't need little mini Chernobyls right. all over the place. Right. So in, in the cool. end, I mean, the takeaway is one, I think for, from my perspective, nuclear power will actually be a long-term solution for power generation. Absolutely. And they are looking to get to a cleaner uh, process because some of these cases talk about cleaning, uh, cleaner nuclear power. Um, but the 3D printing applications that they talk about here are applicable to a lot of different industries. It's like the last one they mentioned about artificial intelligence to help train and help the decision-making process. So you get a part, you know, is it good or bad? Should I use it? It will have enough data and recommendation to say, yeah, maybe, or good. Imagine so. we completely stop using coal stop and using we're coal. all, and we're all using nuclear power. Sure. And then the next problem there is, you know, well, what do we do with all of this, all of this depleted uranium? Yeah. It's like, you, you could you could bring down the prices of ammunition. <laughs> Speaking of high prices, tell me about Bugatti and metrology. Bugatti. So, so this article is really cool, and it goes into this guy Gregory. Um, the name's actually not Gregory, but it's it's definitely a French version of Gregory. So sure. it's it's spelled G R E with accent agu, uh, G O I R E. I'm just gonna call him Greg. Um. 
works as a uh, metrologist at Bugatti. And this guy is responsible for um, basically ensuring that every car and every component of every car meets the strictest tolerances and standards to make for. So Bugatti can make the finest product out there. And it's not just for, you know, the, the, the luxury good clout, but it's also for their performance reasons. Like, you know, they're making cars that, I assume I haven't followed the the, the Bugattis in forever, but yep. I am I, I assume at least come close to three hundred miles an hour, if not exceed three hundred miles an hour these days. Um, and when you're taking a car that fast and it's fighting aerodynamic drag that hard, everything needs to be locked down, yeah, and exactly to spec sure. because it's th- this car is actually wind tunnel tested, and the tires I think. Uh, go bad before you run out of gas right. at, at speeds that <laughs> yeah. high. So everything like naturally um, when you do a tire change and or, or like I think I read somewhere that like the new Bugatti every four sets of tires mm-hmm. you need to replace the wheels. <laughs> so so metrology and it's because the material gets out of spec that right. quickly. Yeah. At, at high speeds and whatever. And, and because of they can only ensure um, that the tire was changed properly so many times. Right. And there's there's so much forgiveness that they can, even though I think pretty sure there's only like 10 technicians around the world <laughs> that are good. certified <laughs> to change the tires. And you and each set of tires is like fifty thousand dollars that, you know, when you when you ding up and dent the wheels so much and they become out of spec and right. you can't just add wheel weights to them no, to get no, them no. back in balance properly. So we'll there, talk- naturally, there's a lot of metrology. Yeah. But I want to tell you all that to tell you this um, or discuss this with you. Rather, it's wild to me that luxury goods, exclusive high end goods that only the 1% of the 1% can afford um, have fully done a 180 since I've at least seemingly since I've started working in the, in the industry from being, Oh, this is, this is a hand, all handmade product, right? You know, because only human eyes and the human touch can, can make a product as fine and exquisite as this. And finally a company like Bugatti is like, no, no, <laughs> brake rotors and brake calipers need to be 3D printed. Oh, we yeah. need to 3D yeah. print stuff out of Inconel yeah. and and ceramics and carbon ceramic. And uh, we need the absolute best metrology uh, possible and available at the state of the art level because, uh, you know, human eyes just aren't good enough yep. for it. Um, and frankly, the price can pay for it. <laughs> so it, it's really cool how we've gone from like. I think handmade technology or handmade quality. And even we talked about this a couple episodes ago with Sig, Sig Sauer. Um, They're basically they basically said on record that if your design can only be handmade, it's a bad design. Yep. And Bugatti's doubling down with that. It's like, you know, handmade stuff is dead. Long live advanced manufacturing. I think it's hearing a lot of consumer uh, acceptance of that concept also. So at that tier of car the idea of handmade fits that consumer. Mm-hmm. But I think they're pushing the envelope to say, this design is so unique, we can't hand make it, right? If you want a good fit and finish, we're moving past the human and certain levels, right? The human eye, it's actually it's actually very hard to compete against that. So if you like yeah. paint and things like that, 
Yeah, like you, I sound like I'm, I'm I'm throwing shade, but the right. human eye is actually <laughs> almost unparalleled but until recently. Between the Im- improvements in uh, traditional manufacturing, subtractive manufacturing to get um, consistent part quality and the ability to have very unique designs, the need for hand fit and finish is probably, to your point, more of a uh, archaic way to manufacture parts. Yeah. Now that being said, I'm sure you'd like a hand fit shotgun. Oh yeah, hand fit shotgun. <laughs> so there, are, there are certain things that you still want hand fit, or or, or hand uh, polished acetate temples on a fine pair of sunglasses. <laughs> but you know that's not a critical component to anything. Yeah, exactly. You know? I don't need my sunglasses to go 340 <laughs> miles an hour. So when you do mention about the tires, at some point let's talk about high cycle and low cycle fatigue. Okay, <laughs> I'd love to hear about that. Uh, the article I've got, Steve, is GE to invest over 450 in US man 450 million. Not dollars, four hundred fifty million dollars in U.S. manufacturing in twenty twenty three. So this comes from their site, GE.com. and it, it goes over a couple of points. And the key takeaway here is where large companies are reinvesting to stay uh, ahead of the uh, you know growth curve or the technology curve. Uh, the first one is uh, their aerospace group. Uh, they have a joint venture for their aero engine operations. They're going to invest seventeen million in Ohio uh, to look at maintain and expand capacity. Uh, across several lines. So that in itself, you know, they want to keep up with growth. Uh, so they're growing their manufacturing capability. Um, and also, so in uh, Alabama, they're going to have 60 million to... Alabama? Uh, back to Alabama. <laughs> uh, to increase uh, their additive manufacturing line. So uh, back to growth. Cool. Um, to Lafayette, Indiana, they're going to uh, invest 7 million to increase tooling support for their Leap engine uh, for maintenance and repair and improve their capacity and productivity. And in the last place in Kentucky, um, they're looking to invest $4 million on maintenance improvements, uh, product, productivity, quality, and maintenance improvements across several engine lines for the U.S. military. So I think you're seeing fairly uh, different use cases, both on the um, uh, the nuclear article and on what GE is investing in. Mm-hmm. When I would say almost keep up, because depending on where they are in their life cycle, if they're investing now, if they're going to truly spend that much for this year, that means they've already had the pipeline of what they want to purchase and, you know, they're executing on that purchase plan. So they're well on their way to meet a growth curve for 23 and beyond. So I thought that was right. a very good look on all, all of their stuff is aerospace uh, focused. So aerospace military. So that's a very interesting look at uh, spending in the Midwest, basically. Yeah. So or South and, and Midwest. That's awesome. It's, it's really good to hear that GE's buckling down. On advanced manufacturing. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of advanced manufacturing, Steve, tell me about space and 3D printing. Yeah, so KFC is bringing back the double down. <laughs> I'm sorry, wrong article. Wrong podcast. <laughs> um, TCT Magazine, Relativity Space secures an FAA license for 3D print for the 3D printed Terran 1 rocket launch. That's a cool name. That's a big deal. That's big. Um, Tell me more about this. There's some subtleties we need to talk about. But like I always do, forget the article. Let's talk about something else kind of relate, kind of sort of related to it. Sure. Um, If you followed the rockets made by any of these major non-NASA private companies, um, they're all making their rocket fuselages with 3D printing. A fuselage. The, the like, cylinder. The cylinder. <laughs> We're talking the simplest part. Like, <laughs> you know, but like everybody's doing it, whether yeah. it's, uh, you know, SpaceX or or Blue Origin. 
they're 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 big dumb barrels that they're shooting <laughs> up into the sky. Um, they're 3D printing. That's fascinating. And it's like we have been told for the past I don't know how many years yep. that one of the big benefits of additive manufacturing is the complex geometries made possible from from the technology. And it's yep. like this is a cylinder. <laughs> this is just a circular wall. Like, like we could use, you know, gantry CNC machines. Sure, yeah. We could use a big lathe probably found in Australia. Um, <laughs> we can use uh, fiber placement. Yeah, yeah. Fiber placement's been making the best carbon fiber cylinders for Boeing. Yeah. You know, why not send it into space? <laughs> like you have so much more money than them. And it, we're 3D printing it. Yeah. We're 3D printing barrels. I'm sure there's some nuance in it, but it, the takeaway, it's, it's like this goes every <laughs> against everything that design for additive manufacturing is saying. And I think it's fair to look at the scale of it, too, because these aren't small, few small barrels. No, they are big. They are big. right? And they have to because of the materials that you can print with with right. 3D printing. Um, they can sustain going in and out of atmospheres. Right. right. So unlike like, you know, carbon fiber gets a little hairy. Yeah. yeah. The other cool thing that um, we've noticed is uh, or that has been pointed out to me um uh a lot of these these barrels being these uh, cylinders excuse me being printed the build plate is vertical meaning oh. the the print is yeah. horizontal because okay. they have to be they make they're making big long rockets sure. and when you're making a big long rocket if you're 3d printing it to make it out of one piece you either need a big building that goes right. high up yeah. or you need an expensive foundation that goes deep down. Yeah. Um, and then you have to send all of that material either up the build right. or all of your printed part Going down, down yeah. into like a well. Right. Um, they're printing it side sideways. Yeah. And my speculation is that if they print it vertically, so the rocket is being printed up and down. Yeah you know, the right way. Um, <laughs> then as the material is added on the load that the material at the base of the rocket, assuming the base of the rocket was printed first, sure. uh, of, excuse me, of the cylinder was printed first is going to have to bear more and more weight as the parts yeah. being printed. Right. And as it settles slowly and cures over time, not cure, but as the sure. material settles, it's going to settle differently from the material at the top, um, which is going to have like no weight on it. So they're going to settle totally differently. And maybe by printing them horizontally and rotating the build plate, sure. gravity has an equal effect. It, like uh, it has an equal effect across all of the material um, the whole time that the cylinder is being printed, which is really cool to me yeah. because I'm like, we're getting back to classic watchmaking technique. This <laughs> sure, is a, they're, sure. they're printing rockets yep. via a tourbillon <laughs> and it's wild and crazy expensive. So you did hit on two things, right? There's the thermal distortion as you're printing and the load because it's such a big object uh, on the part going uh, to the base of the part. Um, and I do agree with you. Length is an issue. I think you're, uh, the answer is probably simpler than you expect. It's, I think there are issues of just height. I think mm -hmm. if you, the they can scale. It might the, just be height. The scale, the, they can scale their factory lengthwise much easier than they can scale height. So if they're trying to build like several different um, engine lines or fuselage, then they can do that right. easier. Right. But you do. So what, when you do. But how do you support? That's the issue. So the, that's been solved a long time ago with. Uh, oh, excuse me, Ben. <laughs> with long turning. So if I'm turning a 10 foot shaft, 
I have to have a steady rest part way to support it. So as they're steady printing, rest. they're adding steady rest or some kind What's of What's that support. called in a lathe? A steady rest. I thought there was another term. Is it really called steady rest? I hope so. Let us know. <sighs> Darn it. In the comments. Because I thought like the big the big Email thing Steve. that that Mazak said yeah. was what separate essentially what it boils down to what separates a regular lathe yeah. from a Swiss lathe is not all like the live tooling and not one being smaller than the other, but it's that the bar stock of the completed part is actually supported by. Oh, so this, yeah, so yeah, there's, what's the other? They're supporting the backside of it on hanging outside the machine. So yeah, let's back to the uh, gosh, engine. It, man. The nice thing about that also is that. Um, they're obviously they're they're able to print complex structure into the skin so that they're mm-hmm. not just printing the skin itself sure, right so sure, sure. we are uh, a little bit marginalizing the the complexity of it but it is interesting to take away turn that, it on a lathe <laughs> that the, the shift in uh that scale uh to a horizontal process which i agree with you they're they're trying to use gravity to their yeah. benefit and for me to see that, and that might be a good interview, is figure out yeah. you know why they're doing it that way for road trip. And I, I also refuse to believe that there's some sort of internal geometry going on because you, if you open this article and you look at some of the pictures, surface the surface finish looks <laughs> it's like a little rough. <laughs> looks like poop, man. It doesn't look good. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it looks like it came out of a McDonald's soft serve machine. <laughs> they need to put down a lot of material. But you know what? Hey, they they're the ones who are getting like one point three billion dollars in funding <laughs> and not not me. So I like the use case a lot, Steve. A lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff in space that 3D printed. Yeah. Do more of it. Where can they find more info about us? AMTonline.org slash resources. Awesome. Thanks, like, Steve. share, subscribe. Bing bong. Bye everyone. Is that your catchphrase now, Bing Bong? <laughs> That's how we're closing it out. That's how you're closing it out.